Most entrepreneurs struggle to generate more customers and online leads. Lack of quality online leads means lack of revenue, and that's bad for your business. Here at Investing in the US podcast, we have partnered up with Ardor SEO, who have developed a system to help maximize your business and online exposure. Your experience as a business owner can radically change for the better with the right SEO team. And with Ardor's system, you wouldn't believe how simple it can be. So find out more by heading over to ardorseo.com. That's A-R-D-O-R-S-E-O.com. Now back into the show. If you believe property can work for you, it can. You've just got to solve a puzzle. If you, if you think it's not going to work, oh, Chris, that strategy doesn't work. I haven't got serviceability. I haven't got this. Yeah, it's not going to work for you. So everything about wealth creation, I think, or 90% of it is in your mindset. And it's really the last 10% is actually what you do to create that money. Welcome to Investing in the US, a podcast for real estate investors, business owners, and aspiring entrepreneurs looking to break into the US market. Join Reed as he interviews go-getters, risk-takers, and the best in the business about their journey towards financial freedom and the sheer joy of creating something from nothing. G'day, g'day, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another cracking edition of Investing in the US podcast from Los Angeles. I'm your host, Reed Goosens. Good as always to have you with us on the show. Now, I'm glad that you've all tuned in to learn from my incredible guests, and each and every one of them are the cream of the crop here in the United States when it comes to real estate investing, business investing, and entrepreneurship. Each show, I try and tease out their incredible stories of how they have successfully created their businesses here in the US, how they've created financial freedom, massive amounts of cash flow, and ultimately created extraordinary lives for themselves and their families. Life by design, as I like to say. Hopefully, these guests will inspire all of my cracking listeners, which are you guys, to get off the couch and go and take massive amounts of action. If these guys can do it, so can you. Now, as you know, I'm all about sharing the knowledge with my loyal listeners, which is you guys, and there's absolutely no BS on this show, just straight into the nuts and bolts. Now, if you do like this show, the easiest way to give back is to give us a review on iTunes, and you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter by searching at Reed Goosens. You can find the show wherever you podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Google Play, but you can also find these episodes up on my YouTube channel. So head over to reedgoosens.com, click on the video link, and it will take you to the video recordings of these podcasts where you can see my ugly mug, but the beautiful faces of my guests each and every week. All right, enough out of me. Let's get cracking and into today's show. Today on the show, the pleasure of speaking with another Aussie in real estate who's really making a massive splash for himself in Australia. And I'm talking with Chris Gray. Now, Chris Gray is the CEO of Your Empire, which builds property portfolios for time-poor professionals searching, negotiating, and renovating on their behalf. Uh, he has been the host of the Your Property Empire on the Sky's New Sky News Business Channel for over 10 years, and he was the real estate judge on The Renovators on Channel 10. As a qualified accountant, mortgage broker, and buyer's agent, Chris is in the independent authority when it comes to educating buyers, sellers, and investors about residential property in Australia. Chris started buying his property at the age of 22 and was semi-retired at the age of 31, but he currently now holds a personal portfolio of over $15 million. Now, he's joining us today on the show to share his insight about the Australian real estate market. Now, we know we talk a lot about investing here in the United States. I'm Aussie. 
Chris lives in Australia and makes a, makes a massive splash down under, but I really want to understand and get an international perspective of how COVID-19 is impacting other markets outside of the United States. So uh, I'm going to shut up now. I'm going to get him out here. I'm really excited to have him on the show to share his incredible knowledge and his insight. But enough out of me. Let's get him out here. G'day, Chris. Welcome to the show. How are you today, mate? Uh, thanks for having me. Mate, um, I would love to... I've heard your story a little while, uh, for a little while, and I've been meaning to get you on for, for, for quite some time. Even though we run in different circles, me being here in the United States and you obviously being in Australia, um, I'm really you know, fortunate to have you on the show. But before we do dive into the show, do you want to give us a little bit of a background on uh, where, you, where you grew up and, and how you made money as a kid and maybe sort of the entrepreneurial start uh, growing up in, in, in what is not actually Australia, but in, in the United Kingdom? Yeah, sure. So look, uh, long story short is uh, I'm an accountant by trade. And so my skill around property is that I've got no emotion. And uh, sorry for the insult to any accountants out there, but that's what investing is all about. And so I've always wanted to have reasonably material things. I like living in nice houses and driving cars and going on holiday and things like that. And so I've just worked out a path that was quicker than everyone else, rather than kind of going to school, going to university, getting a good job, paying off a home loan, all those kind of things. So basically, I started investing at the 22 in the UK, I earned 10,000 pounds. And even at that early age, I basically worked out it was cheaper to buy a three-bedroom house than a one-bedroom unit because I could rent two rooms out and actually live for free. And because I was the first home buyer there, and if you understand the UK system, I wasn't in the chain, so I was effectively a cash buyer, I managed to buy a 100 grand uh, property for 80 grand. So I made two years' salary overnight and lived for free. And then at 23 or 24, I repeated it again, and then uh, came to Australia. And by 31, I had six properties. In the boom of early 2000s, I was making 600 grand a year from capital growth, and I earned 80 grand or 60 after tax from Deloitte's. And so my way up was, do I go to work for 40 hours for 60 grand, or do I sit on my backside and do nothing for 600 grand? And I was a good enough accountant to realize I'll take the 600 grand. <laughs> so what brought you to Australia? Was it uh, for love? So it's a classic thing of uh, in our village, kind of north of London, everyone before university or school and university, then they went and traveled and they went to Australia and they went to Bali. So I did the same thing. But um, my entrepreneurial spirit, I loved driving. So I was a courier in London for six months before. And I started off three and a half grand in debt and ended up five grand in debt. So I wasn't a great businessman. And um, so when I came to Australia, I worked seven days a week, but absolutely loved it because I thought the, the best thing about Australia you can live, I was living on Manly Beach then in a backpackers for probably 10 or 20 bucks a night. And I worked seven days a week, but I still had time to go for a swim and a surf first thing in the morning, go to work, go to the pub, and it was a perfect life. So I think Australia, if you've got no money, it's amazing. If you've got lots of money, it's absolutely incredible. <laughs> it's the best of both worlds. No, and I, I want to retire back there one day, but uh, unfortunately for me, it took me to the other side of the world and to the United States. Um, but when you started your your empire of property investing and, and really becoming, you know, as we both spoke about offline, a, a gentleman we know, the key person of influence, you know, getting yourself known for helping and advising people, when did you start down that path of, of promoting yourself and being the expert in the room uh, when it comes to helping others get involved in real estate investing? Sure. So look, it was purely by accident. So a lot of people at Deloitte's realized that I was doing something different, especially when I tried to salary sacrifice a 355 convertible Ferrari, and they worked out the fringe benefits tax on it was more than my wages. So I, was, I was really low in Deloitte's, but I'd bought a quarter of a million dollar car. And um, no one could understand how I did it because I think the value was actually four or 500 grand. And so that was the tax. 
so basically people were kind of noticing me at Deloitte's and basically at 31 I retired and I had nothing to do so I started doing extras work a, a mate of mine was doing uh, extras work and you got the princely sum of $22 an hour and I didn't want to be an actor I didn't want to be on TV but I just want to see how they make movies and probably the famous one we did was Baz Luhrmann and uh, Nicole Kidman of Chanel number no. 10 or something like that and it was really cool just to see what's going on and on a film set, you spend all your time just chatting to people. So I used to help people on set. And one of the ex, the other extras, then through his agency, uh, heard about a job on Channel 9 on TV where they wanted an expert. And all the real estate chains didn't want their competition in there. And I was seen as the independent person. So I had all this knowledge on property. And because I didn't represent ever, anyone, I didn't sell anything, People trusted what I said because I didn't have a vested interest to take them down a certain path, which most people obviously do now. And so that was the thing is I just start built, built a name through TV. And then more people said, oh, how do you do it? So I started teaching people how to invest. And then some of the wealthier ones said, look, I haven't got time to learn. I don't want to deal with the agents. Can I pay you whatever you buy for yourself? Can you buy one for me? And that's how the whole business started off in uh, 2004 as education and then 2008 as, as a buyer's agent. Got it. And so to, we want to walk this, some of the listeners through, because we educate a lot on the show about the, the US market and how you make money here and commercial real estate and cash flow and you know buying multifamily and all that sort of great stuff. How does it work in Australia and what's the Australian market? People ask me all the time, Reid, have you made money in Australia? And I said, no, I haven't. I've actually made all my money here in, in the United States. So I'm not the expert. That's why I've got you on the show. So, so how do people, the, the layman investor wanting to get involved in the Australian market, what, what are they doing? What are they looking for in terms of, an, of a strategy uh, to invest in and hopefully retire early like you did at 31? Sure. So look, my strategy is super simple. And even though I've done maybe 400 interviews on TV hosting my own shows, my strategy is the same as it was at 22. So maybe I just kind of lucked into uh, the right strategy. The main thing I say about my strategy, it's too simple for most clever people. So it's super simple, but all the intelligent people like the directors and the business owners, they think it's got to be harder and so they try and change it. They try and get too clever and invest overseas and do lots of different things. And it always goes wrong. So I'm a believer of slow and steady wins the race. So look, my very first property at 22 was I bought into a town. So not a, not a, a central place like London where there's no limit of supply because obviously you can build tall towers. It's a place called St. Albans, 20 miles north of London. And basically what it was, it was kind of a heritage area. So you can only build two or three stories high. And that's the same with places like in Australia, like Bondi Beach that everyone knows. You can only build three stories high. And so what that does is that limits supply of property. Then there's an increasing demand of young people that are cashed up that then want to buy or to rent that property. And so with all my interviews on Sky News, even though they talk about housing affordability globally, um, how can property prices keep rising, people can't afford it, all of these different things, the one economic law that outstrips all of the other laws is supply and demand. So if you've got an area where there's no more property, people hold on to it for 40 or 50 years, and lots of people still want to buy there, prices go up. And so even in COVID now, the prices hasn't changed around the average price. So, so my strategy is go to areas not in the CBD, but maybe 3 to 15K, so where all the commuters want to commute in from. Go where there's three-story height limit, so there's no more property. Most of the property is 40 or 50 years old, so it's stood the test of time and, and just needs a bit of maintenance. And buy within, say, 20 or 30% of the median price, because then that means 80% of the locals can afford to buy it or rent it. 
generally we're avoiding foreigners. Um, we don't want to be reliant on one market. So again, the Bondi Beach example, which hopefully most people in, in the US would know, um, it's 20 to 40 minutes from town. It's on the beach, it's on the water, it's got cafes, beaches, restaurants, young people, very affluent, and they just want to hang by the beach and they'll pay for it. Yeah, no, it's, it's a super incredible um, idea. And, and, and look, growing up in Australia, my dad, you know, and I was taught that you, you double your money every 10 years. And when I come to the United States and I talk to people who have doubled and tripled their money since the last recession through investing in commercial real estate, and we're not even going to get into that, this whole adage of changing the mindset back to doubling your money in, 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 uh, over a longer period of time. You spoke about long-term investing at the beginning when, when we first got you on the show. So uh, is the Australian market all about long-term gains and nothing about the immediate cash flow right now? It, it is for me. So obviously there's 101 different property markets, there's 101 different strategies, and there's no right or wrong. So the advantages of my kind of strategy is it's not very volatile. So we have a global financial crisis, we have SARS, we have COVID, and the market doesn't halve in price because no one's selling those things. People can still afford the rent, and so it's reasonably stable. But the downside is the negative gear, which basically means that the rent doesn't cover the mortgage. So if you buy, first of all, you've got to spend a million dollars to get into that market, and then it might cost you 10 or 20 grand a year to hold on to it. And an average income owner can't afford that. So this is something for average or above average income earners. But if you can hold on to that, ideally, yes, it does double every 7, 10, 12 years. And ideally, you try and refinance every year or every two years, pull the equity out and either use that equity to help cash flow that property into the future, or you use that money to keep building your property portfolio. Got it. And, so and so I still believe in property doubling every 7, 10, 12 years. I don't think that's really changed. And look. I'm, I'm, I'm an accountant, so you can prove any figure you want. <laughs> and I could prove that for years it hasn't gone up. I can prove for years I've made a million in three months. And so I'm a believer of if you think property can work, it's going to work for you. If you think shares is better, go and buy shares. Right. And so some of the other strategies are more positive cash flow. So you go out to regional Australia, maybe the rental yields are maybe 5 6 7%, whereas in Bondi they're like 3 or 4 but your capital growth isn't going to be as high. It's not going to be as consistent. You've maybe got one industry towns. And so something like a COVID or a change in Qantas or Virgin or something like that could completely ruin the town. Yeah, no, you, you, you mentioned stuff that exactly what we talk about all, all the time here on the show is not don't invest in a one trick pony town, right? Because you're going to be susceptible to market swings. Um, you know, we get COVID, completely industries come to a grinding halt. And I, I remember when I was learning about real estate back in the early 2000s in Australia, this, the amount of money that people had made in the mining boom, you know, with, with buying these crappy little places in the middle of nowhere and these things going into like being worth millions and millions of dollars overnight. When the mining boom eventually came, uh, mining bust came, I should say, those people holding these things that are worth nothing, right? And so it's very, it's, it's similar strategies and and talking about where you have limitations on on urban development and urban um, uh, density, which is super important, um, and and also having making sure that you're investing in an area where there's sustainable growth over the long term. So I guess the question to you then is, how do you retire so young when you don't have that cash flow in your pocket and you've got it held in capital gains? Sure. And so what my strategy is, it's not about income, it's about um, cash effectively. So everyone says they need income to retire, but that's not true. They need cash. 
um, because that's what you obviously spend. So whether it's income, so income in Australia, you pay 50% tax, whereas on capital growth, you only pay maybe 25%. And if you never sell it, you never pay any tax. So I'd always rather a dollar of capital growth that I don't pay tax on and I, or I pay tax in 30 or 40 years than a dollar of income now. So effectively, what I'm really doing is almost take borrowing equity or I'm living off the increase in my property's value because if I need 100 grand, I need to earn 200 grand of income to pay 100 grand in tax to pay me 100. Right. Whereas if I took 200 grand out of my equity, I pay me 100, I maybe pay 10 grand in interest and I can reinvest that other 90 into another three or 400 grand property. So in business, it's a very straightforward or accounting, it's a very straightforward concept. In layman's land or consumer land, it's seen as dead risky, you're living off equity, you're borrowing your wages, but it's actually highly efficient, it's completely legal, it's completely normal. But I guess the difference is now is 10 or 20 years ago, you could just say, I can afford the repayments and you could borrow 80%. Now you've got to, serve, you've got to prove serviceability. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I still have a business. So all of my work comes my own property portfolio. My business is a hobby. I love doing it. I work for free most of the time anyway. But what it also gives me is serviceability to get the banks to lend me the money to then keep building the portfolio or to live off. Got it. Got it. So you pay. So really the stage for most people is build your asset base to a healthy amount, whether it's a million or five or 10 million or $20 million. And then as the property value increases by 10%, your gearing goes down by 10%. And then you're not so focused on your career, you can focus on other things that you love. And then the classic quote is, um, if you love what you do, you never work a day in your life. Right, right. No, well, that's very interesting. So you, you, you pay yourself essentially what we call a W-2 here in the United States, but it's a, God, even a blue, <laughs> I forget what it's called in Australia now, it's been so long. But you, pay, you give yourself a pay stub, right? So you can prove to the banks that you're getting some money coming in so you can then go and get more loans to then qualify and service those debts and, and continue to grow your base of capital, right? Which is the, the assets itself. Yeah. So the big thing in Australia, the last couple of years, so we, we, in 2018, 19, we had a credit crunch where we had a banking Royal commission and they were worried about people over borrowing. And so everything was about serviceability with the banks, proving you can repay a loan. And so now there's different products out there. We're looking at setting up um, maybe a property fund now. So even if people have got no serviceability, we can still go off and do it. So this is where you need to be creative. And that's what I said earlier on is, if you believe property can work for you, it can. You've just got to solve a puzzle. If you, if you think it's not going to work, oh, Chris, that strategy doesn't work. I haven't got serviceability. I haven't got this. Yep, it's not going to work for you. So everything about wealth creation, I think, or 90% of it is in your mindset. And it's really the last 10% is actually what you do to create that money. No, that's, that's, it, it, it's exactly correct. Um, do you dabble in the commercial real estate at all in Australia or just, just only in resi? No, I'm not clever enough. <laughs> You're not so clever enough. <laughs> the, great, the great thing with Edential is you don't need to be a genius. Yep. And nothing has really changed, I believe, in the last 30 or 40 years. Um, when we had um, the global financial crisis, like 2008, 2010, a lot of commercial halved in price and they still had the same tenants. They still had the rental income. They still had the same outgoings, but the market just valued it differently. So in the commercial world, you've got all the big guns, the top end of town, some super clever people, and they're all trying to manipulate the markets and the properties and add value and stuff like that. You don't have that generally in, in residential. And so 
sure, it's not sexy, it's not cool, but I'm cool. All the clever people can go off and do their stuff in commercial and that's fine. And, and sometimes they double their money overnight and sometimes they have it. Mm -hmm. I don't want that thing because to me, everything's about lifestyle. I want to relax. I don't want to have to read the newspapers. I don't want to have to suddenly worry with COVID now that the banks are knocking on my door. I want to sit back and enjoy my life. Got it. No, no, I think it's super smart. And, and, and to your point, keeping it simple, stupid, that, oh, the KISS you know, strategy, yeah. it's, it's, it, it hasn't changed from London to Australia. You're buying in great areas. Um, I guess the only wrinkle that I would add to you with, with the pressure of affordable housing and with the pressure of density, are you worried that the governments or local municipalities may change those, those you talk about the three-story height restrictions where people cannot, because I, I lived in New York City and I was a structural engineer in New York City for many years. In Brooklyn, as, as urban sprawl happens, this huge rezoning occurred where the commercial, one-story commercial could then be actually turned into 10 stories of apartments. Um, are you worried at all about that sort of stuff coming to, to, to hot towns like Bondi Beach and Manly and all that sort of stuff? Sure. So there's two things. So I just worry about things when they happen. Mm -hmm. And sure, I, I do try and look into the future, but I can't control any of that stuff. So I don't worry too much about it right. because otherwise you spend your whole life um, being scaremongered. <laughs> In places like Parramatta, which is um, maybe 20 or 30 k's west of Sydney, it's, all, it's called our second CBD. That's happening there. And I've actually got a separate property fund that's investing in property options to do exactly that, to take a, a block of 50 units to 500. Mm -hmm. But that is effectively a CBD, again, with no height restrictions. For them to do that in a Bondi or a Manly, and Manly has got some big towers there from like 30 or 40 years ago in the days of the brown paper bags and paying cash to the, uh, <laughs> the councils, apparently it was happening. Um, first of all, I don't think it will happen. And if it does, it's very, very hard. Because in Coogee, one of our blocks, we bought a block of um, seven units or seven apartments from different owners. And over three or four years, we went to council and we doubled it to 14 units. So we effectively doubled the supply. But an extra seven units in Coogee doesn't even touch the sides. To try and get lots of different owners all to agree, and, and Australian rules have changed now. You used to have to have 100% agreement. Now you need 75%. But even with that, where people have lived in there for 30 or 40 years, to try and get people to change is really, really hard. So even if it does happen, it'll take so long for all those individual buildings to agree, for a developer to come along, for people to agree to pay capital gains and stamp duty and go from their old property that they've loved to something new, I don't think it's going to happen. Or if it does, it might change supply by 5 or 10%. Investing in the US podcast is proudly sponsored by ardorseo.com. Online marketing for your business shouldn't be a headache, and that's why the guys over at Ardor SEO have created a no-hassle system that will increase your online traffic, increase your leads, and generate predictable and reliable revenue. So what are you waiting for? Head over to ardorseo.com and find out more. That's A-R-D-O-R-S-E-O.com. Now, back into the show. But what you're also banking on the fact is if it does happen, and you own in those areas, well, then your density's just doubled or whatever has happened. And your, your, your three story is now worth more because you can sell the dirt on a future value of whatever you can build on it. If you can go and take it to six or 12 or whatever it might be. So that you have a locked in value that someone else will find valuable, i.e. a developer to sell it on at, at a price that probably makes sense. And we all, you, Exactly, because where we're looking in the Western suburbs on these property options, say someone's got a property worth maybe half a million dollars, we're potentially offering them 900 grand or a million dollars. So we're offering them a 
double their value, um, which even when you take capital gains in stamp duties, they're still making a premium profit right, anyway. Right, because you know what the future value is. You're coming in and adding value in highest and best use. We talk a lot about this here in uh, in the beach cities of Los Angeles, which is very similar, you know, market to to Australia and Sydney. Um, Chris, what what so what are you focused on with your helping of these other people? You spoke about your business before, and it's a passion. You clearly have a passion for it because you need to keep yourself entertained. Otherwise, you'd be sitting on your on your porch all day just twiddling your thumbs. So, so what are you what, what are you doing to help the other folks get out in the in the world and uh, and start buying real estate? Oh, look, I've been busier the day I retired from work than when I was working <laughs> because I've just got so many hobbies. So, when a mate of mine, I was living with a, a guy called Barry White, not the uh, singer, but uh, a guy from the UK. And um, he would go off to work at the um, stock exchange every day. And I'd be almost up at six or seven in the morning and back at midnight because I was just doing lots of things. So I certainly don't get bored. I love cars. I love boats. I love going out there and doing stuff. Very, very active. So um, I, try and, I try and sit on the porch if I can, but uh, it never really happens. But look, um, I spend most, so probably 90% of what I do, I do for free. And that teaches everyday Australians or people from overseas how to go and invest. So all my shows on Sky News, a lot of the seminars I do, a lot of the books, most people aren't my target market because they can't afford the fees. They don't necessarily believe in paying someone to go off and do it for them. And or they're passionate themselves and they want to go off and do it. And so I don't mind that. I'm happy being almost a household name so that everyone sees me as being positive because I don't charge anyone. All of the books I, I have, I give away for free. And so it's to educate most people on, on uh, what they want to do. And then it's really the people that value what I do. So effectively, say there's a million dollar property in Bondi, at auction, that would normally sell for a million and 50 or 1.1 million, five or 10% more, because so many people want it and it's rare as anything. Whereas as a buyer's agent, if we can go and buy it for a million dollars on a bank valuation, which is conservative, we charge 2%. So I think your agents in the US charge 6% to sell. Correct. We charge 2% to buy, so a slightly different model. Um, so my value proposition to them is pay me 20, but I'll say, I'll choose your better property and I'll maybe save you 50 or hundred, mm. but most Aussies don't get that. So they'd rather take my information and do it for free. So we do a lot of social media, um, TV, a lot of these podcasts kind of thing. And most of the people will take the information they'll go off and do it themselves. And the logic works anywhere around the world. So whether you're in the U S the UK, as I said before, 90% is mindset and the way you think about it. Just like, would you pay 20 to say 50 or 100? My dad's generation, he wouldn't buy anything off anyone that drove a BMW because he said they're overpaid. <laughs> but the logic in the old days was look after the pennies, the pennies look after the pounds. Now the theory is you spend a dollar to make $2. Yeah, 100%. Um, what, did I hear correctly that you still rent? Is that correct? Yeah. So um, we've got a concept over here called rent vesting. Yes. And uh, I don't know if the same word's used in, uh, in the US, but I'm probably the most famous person for, for being a renter. So the old strategy, again, the parents' generation, don't rent, renting, rent money is dead money. But what I worked out at an early age was I could afford to rent something three or four times more expensive than I could afford to buy. And the logic is, say that million dollar Bondi unit, on a summer's day, there's a queue all the way down the street of people wanting to rent, and so the rent's fairly high. And our rents are actually low now, but about 3 or 4%. Whereas if you go and rent a 5 or $10 million building, how many people can afford the rent on a 5 or $10 million building? 
not a lot. So what happens to the price? It goes down. Then of those people that can afford the rent, how many people do want to rent? And no one, because the boss doesn't want to come in and say, I rent, because everyone will say, I thought you were wealthy, I thought you are successful, you're a poor renter. And there's a social stigma about renting. So what happens to the price? It goes down even further. So I typically rent a five or $10 million home, but I pay about 1% yield, whereas all of my properties get between three and 4% yield, and 100% of my debt is tax deductible. Right. But the downsides of this, so people say, so all the naysayers, they say, yeah, but it's not capital gains free. And I said, yeah, but in your home, you only normally keep that for three or four years and you sell it. And you're then still paying the out costs and the in costs of getting in and out. If I never sell my properties and I pass them on to my kids, they never sell them. No one ever pays capital gains. Got it. And then they say about the hassle of moving. And we say, well, when we move, we go off on holiday, which is a positive experience. We upgrade to a better house, which is a positive experience. And we get removal list to pack it, to move it, to unpack it, and do everything else. So where's the negative in having to move? Yep. No. So again, it's all about attitude. Mr. Cardone, Grant Cardone, I'm sure you're familiar with him. He's very big here in yep. the United States. He's a big, avid guy. Similar to that is, is that sort of rent vesting type of thing because it doesn't make sense to, to own. So it's similar to what you, you're exactly what you're saying. Um, in terms of pivoting now into to COVID, and, and, and I guess this, this, this is recorded on April 28th. It probably won't launch till late May, early June. But where's the Australian market at right now from, um, from property prices, from investor, uh, consumer sentiment, all that sort of stuff? Or is it too early to tell where the ship's headed uh, in the Aussie market? Sure. So the bottom line is obviously no one knows about COVID and what's going to happen in the future anywhere around the world. So it's all speculation. Um, we're kind of five weeks in. The first week in, we had big panics. Uh, most of the world was ahead of us in terms of what was going on. And as usual, the Aussies think, oh, she'll be right, mate. And uh, <laughs> it, won't, it won't reach us. No one knows where we are. Um, so in that first week, we probably had half of our clients put their searches on hold. Because if they're after a five or $6 million home and they're getting a $4 million mortgage and they work for a bank, they don't know if they've got a job next week. Right. So that's understandable. But then the other half were saying, no, this is a great opportunity because a week ago, I was paying maybe a million and 50 or 1.1 for a million dollar property, whereas now I can get it for nine or 950. So in our market, we think the market's only potentially changed five or 10%. But if you were emotionally paying 10% over and now you're 10% under, technically that's a 20% drop. But I'd still argue is when we come back out of this, which could be in a month or six or 12 months, the prices will just reconvene to where they are. And we had the same in the credit crunch two years ago. Prices dropped 10%, bounced straight back up. But look, our market that I invest in is really, really solid because it's median price secondhand. If you're in brand new property, developer stock high rises, that was suffering 10 or 20% anyway. And it could potentially suffer another 10 or 20% after that because it's generally our rules is foreigners have to buy brand new. They can't buy secondhand, which protects the locals. And the locals don't want to buy brand new anyway. And so there's no foreigners buying in Australia. So if you're a developer and you've got stock, it's going to be a pretty tough gig. Mm. Um, if you've got more regional stuff, it just depends on that local market. If you've got more expensive stuff, say in the good areas, good property always sells. When the market changes from a good market to a bad market or a high market, it's the stuff that doesn't tick all the boxes. So it hasn't got parking, wrong side of the street, faces the wrong way. That's the stuff that won't sell. 
And if you're forced to sell, it might be again down 10, 20 or 30%. But the main thing protecting Australia at the moment or Australians is we've got a six month holiday on mortgage repayments. And so if you're not getting as much rent in or if you can prove that you've lost your job or you're on limited income, you can take a six month repayment holiday. Chances are you're still gonna be getting some rent in so you can keep still building up your buffer. But if you don't have to pay the mortgage for six months, that gives you, it stops panic selling, which is a great thing because you only lose money if you actually physically sell. If the market goes down and recovers and you haven't sold, who cares what it's got, even if it's gone down 50%. So I think that's the major thing that will protect our market. And who's to say if you're still in trouble, the government won't extend that another six months. Mm. Who's the other thing is, is with the credit crunch over the last few years, a lot of people were forced from interest only to principal and interest or they were gonna be, you could only do maximum five years. Now they're saying they're not worried about responsible lending now. And so I'm even I'm speaking to my banks to say, my interest only is changing to P&I in a year's time. I wanna renegotiate that now. Hmm. But at the same time as I've renegotiated my loan. So I've literally made three calls yesterday and in two of the calls, I'm waiting for one call back, I've saved $70,000. Because of one of my interest rates, I've dropped down 20%. Wow. And I'm a high risk borrower. So I was paying something like four and a quarter percent. Now I may be paying three and a half. And I never thought that the banks would negotiate with me because I'm, I'm not in with the mainstream banks. I'm with second or third tier lenders. But I said, and this is maybe the trick and, and hopefully it works in the US as well is I don't want to go to the hardship department because then I'll be classified as hardship that I technically you can't default on a loan at the moment, but you could be labeled as that. So I want to go to the retention department and I say, I'm not in hardship, but I could be in the future. I want to protect you. I want to protect me. If you drop my rates down and you change me to interest only, I'm almost guaranteed I'll be able to keep my repayments up for the next five years, which suits us both. Yep. So let's have a conversation. Yep. No, I, I love that. And that's, that's exactly what a lot of people are doing right now here in the, in, in the United States. Um, who's funding the mortgage relief holiday right now? Is it the government? So I think it's the government, but it's not actually a, they're not actually giving you any money. All they're doing is stopping the repayment. So your interest is still going to capitalize mm -hmm. and they're just going to add another six months to the right. end of your loan or get you to pay it back. They call it for, so forbearance, this right? is the thing we've got with tenants because the, the downside is the government said, right, tenants can't be evicted for the next six months. And so loads of tenants said, right, stuff it, I'm paying the rent. But what the government said is, no, you're still liable for the rent, but the landlord's got to negotiate and have a chat. So as a landlord, I'm saying, sure, if you can only afford 500 bucks a week rather than six, I'll take the 500, but you still owe me that 100. Mm. And the tenant would then come back and say, no, well, you've got a six month repayment from the bank. And I'm saying, yeah, but do you reckon the bank's going to let me off six months of mortgage payments? No, they're not. I'm already subsidizing your property by a grand or $1,000 a month anyway. So I'll let you pay whatever you can afford, but you're still going to pay it, uh, pay me at the end, or I'll take it from your, your bond, or my insurance will cover me. Whereas if I give you a cheaper uh, rent, then I can't claim it from the bond or from the insurance. Right. No, it's exactly the same things. I, I own 1,900 units here in the United States. We're doing the exact same thing. Um, I'm having conversations with lenders. Not Nothing's... Mayday right yet? I don't need to apply what's called forbearance here in the United States. So they take the three or four months, whatever you apply, and apply it to the back end, or apply it over a twenty-four month repayment 
period. Um, but we're doing the same thing to all our, all our renters as well. You know, whatever you can pay right now, but you still owe it. We've got a couple of people who are putting up a stink and they watch the news and they think, oh, well, you know, you can't evict me, so uh, I'm just refusing to pay it. You know, it's like, well, he's... When they start evicting again, you're, you're first in line, mate. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. and, and, and that's the thing is a lot of people make knee-jerk reactions in that first week. And the main thing we're saying to people is calm down, chill out. You don't have to make a decision straight away. And so if a tenant asks you for a thing, uh, for a reduction, sure, okay, give me a couple of days. Let me have a think about it. Then come back and say, right, okay, if you want to do it fairly, can you give me your financial statements as a month ago? How have they changed? And let's have a conversation to say, well, what government support are you getting? Mm. So it's all about having that conversation. And this is where for a lot of people that are owner managers, they just drop their pants straight away and take a shortfall. Whereas those with professional property managers, they're then they're dealing with it multiple times. They're used to the conversations. And that's worth where they're worth every dollar that you uh, that you pay them. Exactly. Exactly. So Chris, um, as we come to wind up the show here, what are you, what's your thoughts for the rest of 2020 what are you doing on a personal level are you still actively looking to buy in 2020 uh, or are you just sort of waiting and see and letting, letting the grass grow right now look for my own portfolio i haven't bought for a while so um i'm probably about 60 or 70 percent geared at the moment and my aim is to let the property market grow so ideally i want to be at say 20 million of assets 10 million of debts so i'm 50 percent geared neutral or positive cash flow and ideally still gear up to 80%. So I've got 30% buffer there. So maybe five or six million bucks or something like that. So, so that's my own portfolio. Because what I've learned over the years is I don't need 50 or 100, 200 million. I'd rather work a few hours a day, enjoy my life, not have any stress, because I've got all the money I need to do stuff. Mm. And I, I rent a lot of my stuff now, like cars, boats, choppers, all of those kind of things. I don't need to own them now. That's, that's the old way of thinking. Um, I'm happy renting them now, not having the liabilities. In terms of a business, we've actually had a cracking month this month and the last couple of months. So there's a lot of people that are contrarian like me. I bought half of my portfolio in the global financial crisis. So it's the perfect time buying now if you, if you, you can't because prices are off 10 or 20% and the window's only going to be open a certain amount of time. But also what I mentioned is we're looking at um, building a property fund, which can be for foreigners and for, for people investing in Australia is for people that either can't leverage or for foreigners that can't buy secondhand, we'll build a fund to buy those million dollar Bondi units. And whether you've got 50 or 100 grand, you can still get in there. And we're thinking this is gonna be a big market for people that can't afford those blue chip properties. So if they want the stability, they want a bit of leverage, I think it could be a great thing. Do I need to build this um, fund? No, but I think it'll be fun. It'll be um, some good people. And I think it'll be a great fund that's different to uh, the other funds out there. Love it, mate. Absolutely love it. Uh, at the end of every show, we like to dive into the top five investing tips. You ready to get into it? Yep, far away. Mate, what is a daily habit you practice to keep on track towards your goals? Having so much debt that I can't sleep. I've got no choice. Is that, sorry, daily habit, meaning like what's your habit to... Um, from a personal or business entrepreneurial point of view? What do yeah, you do every day? That, that's almost it is because I sleep with so much debt, <laughs> I've got to, I get motivated every day. It's like the forced savings <laughs> thing about buying your whole, uh, your whole thing. Yeah, I, so got it, I, got I don't it. work all the hours under the sun. And my wife says, oh, everyone else goes out to work every day. And I said, yeah, but I've got $10 million worth of debt on my shoulders 24-7. That's my job. 
and it's managing that stress by having fun that allows me to keep that that makes my long-term money got it no, that's, that's a smart answer i love it i love it who's been the most this is question number two who's been the most influential person in your in your career to date so there was there was one guy i won't mention his name because he's pretty much a criminal um but i went to a seminar years and years ago and a lot of people say to me what seminar should i go to and i say go to all of them because you can learn something from all of them even if they just come out of prison then go and learn from them because then you learn how not to get ripped off how they ripped other people off and that whole system and one of the things i took out and i spent about 15 grand on this course and this is one thing that i preach to lots of other people that's hopefully saved millions of people is always get an independent valuation so before you buy any property even though we buy the same ones year in year out we pay 660 dollars for a 30 page valuation from an independent person that almost guarantees that you're never ever going to pay for a property and that is the best tip that i've reckoned has saved me millions over the years and i reckon saved a lot of lives from people doing stupid things but most people won't spend that they'll spend a million dollars on a property but they won't spend 660 on a valuation Awesome. Love it, mate. Uh, in your business, what is the number one tool that you use in your business? When I say tool, it could be a, a phone, which is a physical tool or a journal, or it could be technology that you use every day that, that helps the business run effectively. What is that number one most influential tool in your business? Again, I'll go contrary and it will be completely off the cards. It's basically ethics. I spoke at a uh, American Express conference to two or 300 salespeople and they say, what's your USP? What's unique selling factor in your business? And I said, I've got something so unique in the property market that no one will ever copy it. And it's called honesty. <laughs> um, we just go out and do the right thing. So we don't have an office. We don't have staff. We have contractors working for us. Sure, we use a phone. We don't have any. We never had a database for 10 years. I still don't even know how to access our database. I never use it because we just think if we're out doing the right thing, we're treating people as we'd like to be treated ourselves, both when we're socially, social media, these kind of things, whatever else, we go and help people, we'll attract the business. We don't try and oversell or undersell the properties. Our pitches will buy you a million dollar property. We're not gonna get it half price, but we're not gonna pay that five or 10% premium. So you're gonna pay me 20 grand because I'm gonna buy you a property that I buy for myself. And I bought in the same buildings as clients and I paid the same price. And if we're honest, that's better than any other technology in the world, I reckon. That's awesome. That's a good, that's a very good question. It's old school, but it's, I think it's clearly done you right for many, many years. Um, question number four is what, in one sentence, what has been the biggest failure in your career? What did you learn from that failure? Okay, I'm not really answering your questions <laughs> in, the, in the best way. So I don't believe in mistakes and I don't believe in failure. I believe it's all learnings. Mm. And so I'm comfortable with who I am today and what I do and what I stand for and everything I've done in the past. If I change one of those things in the past, almost like that sliding doors movie, yep. um, I could be in a completely different position to where I am today. I don't necessarily want for anything else. I don't need anything else. And so I'm 100% happy with exactly what I've done and I wouldn't change a single little thing. That's awesome. That's a good, that's a good question. It's a good answer because I think so many people beat themselves over the head about mistakes in the past, but they, they are just, just learnings and it's your path, right? And you, 
you come down this path yourself and you've arrived where you are. And, and if you're happy with that, and you can sleep at night, then hey, that's great. And look, I mean, we, we've lived in massive houses that we lived in a third of it. Right. I've driven some of the best supercars in the world, been on 10 to $15 million super yachts. I don't need to own all those things. Mm. And I've seen a lot of wealthy clients that have that and the stress that goes with it, it's not worth it. And that's why I'm happy. There's a lot of people that are worth or the same uh, assets, they could have had a $100 million portfolio. I don't care about other people. I just worry about what I'm doing and if me and my family are doing the right thing. Love it. Mate, last question is, where can people reach you to continue the conversation? They want to be in your sphere. They want to learn a little bit more about you. Where do they go? Uh, I can answer that one really easily. Um, so my website's Your Empire, Y-O-U-R, empire.com.au. Um, if you just Google Chris Gray, G-R-A-Y, or property, I should be uh, kind of uh, straight up all over Google and stuff like that. So we do a reasonable amount on um, Facebook. A lot of it's the kind of fun things I'm doing day to day. You've got to understand my uh, sarcastic English humor for a lot of them. Um, and then bits and pieces on Instagram, LinkedIn and stuff like that. So uh, yeah, that's pretty much the way way. But look, probably the best thing for anyone is if you go to your empire, my main book that I've got, which is called um, The Effortless Empire, so how to build an empire but effortlessly without working too hard, they can download it PDF or uh, soft copy, uh, absolutely free. And again, 90% of the mentality of that you can use anywhere in the world. Awesome. Awesome stuff, mate. Well, look, I want to thank you so much for taking some time out of your day to tune in. I just want to reflect a few of the things that I took away from today's show. I think the biggest thing for me that I took away was your simplicity in keeping it simple, stupid when you're approaching real estate investing and that it doesn't have to be complicated and you can create a lot of wealth through um, investing in areas which have super very high supply and demand issues, um, making sure that you're keeping to areas where they have less than three-story house density, you know, so you're never going to get outbid or outbuilt, I should say. Um, but also, I think your ethics. I think that's a really thing that's come, boiled to the top for me that you're always leading by example. You don't need all the bells and whistles and you're doing what you love day in, day out. I think that is super, super important um, and, and helps you build a better brand for yourself. Um, to be trustworthy, and as you said before, you don't even you don't even have a CRM, uh, but you're using word of mouth. So, um, so did I leave anything out? Um, I, it's all good. It's whatever you want to take out of these things. That's the main thing. And ideally, people get completely different things from the same speakers. Yeah, no, hundred percent, mate. Well, look, I want to let you go. Enjoy the rest of your week, and we will catch up very, very soon. Wonderful. Thanks for the time. Well, there you have another cracking episode jam-packed with some incredible advice from Chris. Please remember to jump over to his website at yourempire.com.au, which obviously stands for Australia. Um, and please check out all the show, um, show notes because we'll have all the links on my website as well to link back to Chris's. And you can also search his name, Chris Gray, G-R-A-Y, uh, on Google, and it'll come up pretty, you know, first probably first two or three people uh, in Australia. I want to thank you all again for taking some time out of your day to tune in to continue to grow your financial IQ. And if you do like this show, please give it a five-star review on iTunes. We're going to do it all again next week. So remember, be bold, be brave, and go and give life a crack.